everyone, and welcome to the Real World Ophthalmology Podcast, a platform made by and for early career ophthalmologists and trainees to bring you content to enhance your education and practice all year round. My name is Allison Early, and I am a cataract surgeon with a budding refractive surgery practice at Cincinnati Eye Institute in Cincinnati, Ohio. I'm currently in my fifth year of practice, but I have a clear memory about six months in thinking, man, I think I've already learned more than I did in the last four years of residency, and I still hardly know anything. So since that day, and even prior to that, I've really tried to be an active learner, seeking out new technologies and devices and trying to keep my clinical knowledge up to date. So both of our guests for this episode have accomplished so much in their careers They're well-respected educators and innovators in this space, so I'm so excited to welcome them. I'm honored to be joined today by my co-host and founder of Real World Ophthalmology, Dr. Lisa Najim. Thanks so much, Allison. Uh, It's really a pleasure to be here with such amazing guests and more so friends. So I'm absolutely delighted to welcome our esteemed guests for today's podcast, Dr. Lorraine Preventure and Dr. Tom Oding to the Real World Ophthalmology podcast. I don't think they need introductions, but for formality's sake, Lori is a glaucoma specialist, cataract surgeon, and partner at Cincinnati Eye Institute, a volunteer assistant uh, professor at the University of Cincinnati, where she teaches medical students, residents, and fellows. She was recently elected to the Clinical Governance Board of her large practice and is active on the national level as a speaker, key opinion leader, and educator. And Tom is a clinical professor of ophthalmology at the University of Iowa and chief of ophthalmology at the Iowa uh, City VA. He studied engineering as an undergraduate and graduate student at Duke University. He was in the ROTC at Duke and went on to serve in the USAF on active duty and in the reserves developing avionics for tactical forces. He changed course inspired by his pediatrician wife and attended medical school at Duke and ophthalmology residency at University of Iowa. After a brief time in private practice, he saw the light and joined the ophthalmology faculty at Iowa 25 years ago. Dr. Oding loves teaching cataract surgery. He's staffed over 20,000 resident cases, ranging from simple first cases to complex cases with experienced chief residents. So it is an honor to welcome both of you to the podcast today. Thank you guys for having us. Well, hey, thank you guys. I'm so sad to be on this uh panel of learning after residency with Lori, who was a resident with us and, and had to learn so much afterwards. It's kind of, <laughs> it's kind of disappointing. It, it, it is so true that, that you just sort of get the tip of the iceberg in residency. And, uh, and so I, I love the idea of this podcast. Thank you for, uh, for inviting me to be part of it. Thank you both so much for being here. All right, let's jump right into it. So as an early career surgeon, the level of hands-on mentorship available might vary depending on your practice setting. So aside from more traditional wet labs or simulators, what advice do you have to manage those sort of first time doing this jitters? Sure, I can start. Um, So I call Tom Oding and then I imagine Tom Oding is sitting by me and then I channel Tom Oding. And then afterwards I call Tom Oding. No, I'm just kidding. But In all seriousness, I think it's really important to have mentors. You want to have a diversity of mentors. You want to establish those relationships while you're still in training. And I think it's actually okay 
to ask people before you leave training, hey, would you be willing to be a lifeline for me in a situation where I might need some advice? And having those expectations set before you leave, I think is really helpful. I, I totally agree with uh, Lori. You know, I, I think about my son who is a tennis player and he was a pretty good tennis player in college, but you know, he was, you know, division three, not that great. And um, he uh, had three or four coaches. You know, one of them was like a strength coach and one of them was like a skills coach. The other one was the team coach. And it always struck me as so weird. Why does my son um, have all these coaches uh, when I'm the one that's, you know, supposed to be earning the money and I don't have a coach. I, I like to have a coach. You know, I like to have somebody to tell me how to do better and watch me and, and uh, hold my hand and stuff. And so one of the things that I think Lori pointed out is you got you have to develop your own coaches. You have to you have to sort of develop a network of people that you can count on to help uh, lead you through the inevitable charge forward as you learn new, new skills. I learn every time I hear both of you talk, and I feel like those are such important points because we're kind of discussing two aspects here. One are things to do before you leave training, and then also what do you do after you leave training? Because there are new skills to be learned in both scenarios. And I think, especially what you said, Lori, is sort of having those conversations so you're comfortable reaching out to mentors after you leave is a fantastic idea. Um, One thing that I learned the hard way was that if you know that you're going to a practice that's using different equipment, different FACO machine or something along those lines than what you're used to training on to see if you can get some of those, um, get that FACO in maybe like your last few months of training so that you have an opportunity to practice or get familiar on it before you leave. Sometimes when a case is over, we can still have a lot of anxiety or worry, especially after doing something new. What kind of tips do you have for post-OR stress management or even intra-OR during the case itself if things are, um, you're trying new techniques and things are not going well? I have a few pearls there because I'm a generally stressed out person. So (laughs) I think for me going into a case, it's all about preparation. So the more prepared I am, the more confident I am. And then I've noticed that the more prepared you are, oftentimes things go well and they don't go as wrong as you're thinking they will. I do everything I can going into a case that's either, it makes me uncomfortable or maybe it's something new. I, like we already said, we, I talk to mentors. I watch videos, every video I can find. I think you do all the physical prep that you can. Like you're not always going to have a wet lab available to you or a surgical simulator, but if you do, great. And then just the night before, I always review the charts. I try and visualize the steps. And, you know, obviously it goes without saying you want to pick the right patient. And I think the biggest thing for me just starting out was just reassuring myself that I can take time on a case. So the slowest surgery that goes as planned is always faster than a sped up case that derails on you. And I I just try and remind myself of that and try to avoid comparing my pace to more experienced surgeons at this particular skill. And that always provides me reassurance. Like I can get through this case is if I go slow. And I just think that's helped me a lot. And then I can pause there for more stuff, but I, I definitely think it's normal to worry afterwards and to be stressed afterwards. I've learned that when I stop worrying is probably when I'm, I stop caring. And I think a good doctor cares and worries and, 
I think we should be more concerned if we're not worrying about our patients after a case. I was going to say, I just totally agree with Lori that the stress and attention to details before and sort of the visualization of the process before is the key to not being stressed afterwards. What I really think about is I really just lay it out. I write it out step by step. I, I usually do little drawings of what I'm going to do, how, what the process is going to be like. I try to work on those little steps. Like it's often the case that if you're going to do a new procedure, that the individual steps can be worked on in an old procedure. For example, if you're going to do Yamini and you've never used the uh, CT Lucia lens, you can put that lens in on a regular case, right? There's no reason you can't put that in a regular case. And so there's a lot of ways you can sort of work on the individual steps in other ways that, that will take some of that stress out. And the details are so important. When somebody describes a, a procedure and they tell you what the details are, just really pay attention to those details. And I also encourage you to, if you can, just send an email to somebody that does that and says, that does that case, because sometimes they published it or they did the video like two years ago, right? They're not even doing it that way anymore. And that video is old news. And if you can just send an email to that person and say, hey, you know, um, Lori, I saw your email on, on this exotic mix procedure and do you even do that anymore? You know, you got any tips for it lately? And, and she's liable to write you back and say, don't do it. It's, it's not the right thing anymore. Or I do it this way now or, uh, or whatever. But it's, it's surprising um, how many times I've been saved by that. You know, you, you see an article and you write the person and then they say, you know, I'm really not doing that anymore. I think I'd avoid it. Uh, or I do it this way now. But anyway, the point is that step-by-step -step details before the case, it's going to help you sleep better after the case is over. I think these are such great tips. Lori, what you had said about your slowest case that goes well is better than a, a fast case that derails, I think is so accurate. And I had heard from my husband, who I think had credited one of his attendings, the phrase, slow is smooth, smooth is fast, which I only recently learned, I think, is a Navy SEAL saying. And I think it applies so well to eye surgery because it's it's just absolutely accurate. And Tom, what you were saying about really making list of all of your steps, I think is really critical. It made me think of when I was adding MIGs to my skill set and I was really focused on the actual MIGs procedure and each step that I was going to do it with that aspect of the case. And then intraoperatively, I realized I hadn't really fleshed out, you know, when I was going to remove viscoelastic or add, you know, there were other steps of kind of how it was going to fit into my usual routine that I should have written out from start to finish of the entire case rather than just that portion of it. So those are both really valuable. So switching gears a little bit, I'm technically still considered a young ophthalmologist for a little less than another year. Uh, so I'm asked from time to time by patients, how many of this procedure have you done before? Um, so of course, when we are trying new techniques or tools, there, there is an interval there where the answer to that question is a small number. So how do you communicate that to patients in a confident way that while it is a new technique, you have the skills to perform this surgery? Well, I, I just think you should be absolutely honest. You want to sleep before, you want to sleep after. And so I, I'll tell patients this is the first time I've ever done something. And I'll tell them I've done all the preparation work. I've talked to this doctor, that doctor. And I'll usually offer them to go somewhere else if they'd prefer. And to be honest with you, most of our patients and I were very loyal. And uh, 
And, and the rest of the world is evil out there. Iowa's a wonderful place. The rest of the world is very scary. I don't even like to go to Illinois where Lisa lives. That's, that's very scary. I heard this from Erin Shriver. <laughs> she would back you up on this. <laughs> so, uh, but anyway, so I think, I think you, I think you have to be really honest about it and just, and then, and then you're a partner with them for the first few. Uh, at least that's my opinion on it. I do think this is tough because, and it's, it's probably easier for somebody like Tom Oding, who is like world renowned and really amazing and known for teaching people and just getting any situation, any bad situation, you know, you can get you out of it. Um, so it's tough when you're younger and you obviously look young. And so I agree. You have to be honest. You definitely don't want to cause concern. There's a delicate balance between being confident and then, you know, causing the false impression for patients. So I think it's nice to say that this is a newer procedure and that you either don't do it often or you're just starting out doing it, but you do hundreds or thousands of eye eye surgeries a year that are similar and that you have the skills it takes to take good care of them. Uh, I can think of a recent example where I had a traumatic cataract that I wasn't really 100% confident or comfortable with. But I did have a backup plan. I had a person there. I had a really good relationship with the patient. I offered to send him somewhere else, just like Tom Oding said, and he wanted to stick with me. And so I think it's okay. Oftentimes in my glaucoma patients, I'll acknowledge that I'm younger. I say, I know I am younger. And if you would be more comfortable with a surgeon who's done more of this or who has some more gray hair, I'd be happy to send you somewhere else and have them take care of you because they tell them it's important that they trust their surgeon. And like nine times out of 10, that's satisfactory. And they want to stick with you because they appreciate the time and the honesty. And if they go somewhere else, I've learned to not take it personally and that it's probably for the best in the long run. You should direct them, Lori, to your your case online where you had nine paracentesis. Remember that one? (laughs) Yeah. And that was with you sitting by my side. I I have not had nine paracentesis since then. Plus the main decision, as I recall. Plus the main decision. Mike Snyder says paracentesis are free, but I don't know if there's a (laughs) a limit to the number (laughs) before you get into an open sky. (laughs) Yeah, eventually it's called a PK. (laughs) The other thing I just want to say was I I really think it's powerful to have a, a buddy with you in the OR. So it's um it doesn't have to be somebody that's done that exact procedure. But for me, like for me, most usually it's a, it's one of our um, chief residents or PGY fours that's with me, and that is so comforting to me. It may sound odd to you, but to me, it's there's it's so comforting to have um, you know somebody like Lori when she was a resident with me. Uh, and I think for those of you in practice, one of your partners with you, even if you haven't done it, it's another person that's got eyes on the situation that maybe has better situational awareness. If you're worried about some detail, it's another person to talk you through a complication. And and then I think you say to the patient, listen, I'm, I'm particularly concerned about your situation is more complicated. I'm going to have a colleague with me. We're going to do it together. We're going to have four hands instead of two. We're going to have, you know, um, more experience there. Neither of us have done this procedure very often. Nobody has done this procedure very often, but we're going to work together on it because we care about you. And I think that probably your colleague would enjoy that. I mean, in the big world of make-believe, right, what's, what are you going to remember, right? You remember these cases. You remember working together. It's, it's, it, it's fun. 
Uh, and I, I, I encourage you to do that. I, I did it a couple of times with Lee Allward when I was just getting started and I'll never forget those cases with him. And, um, uh, and he hadn't done them before either, but it was just, it was just having somebody else there with you beside you. Anyway, something to think about. I think that's a great reminder for young ophthalmologists. I was going to say to, to not be afraid to ask and that, you know, more senior colleagues might be more than happy to sit in and, and offer their guidance and mentorship to you in the operating room. I've used that actually unplanned when I had a case early on, a, a DSEC that didn't, wasn't going quite as planned. And I had one of my senior partners at that time who was operating next door. And so I just, uh, I asked, can you please, can you please get him? <laughs> I just want to, he wasn't a corneal surgeon, but it was nice to have him come in because he had uh, so much more experience than I did at that point. And even just to have him give kind of some reassuring words and, you know, we had a, a quick discussion. It was helpful to me. And since then I've had several surgeon colleagues who are friends who also called for help when they are in the OR and they ran into things. And so I think if you have the opportunity to have someone with you, especially when you're um, starting something new or starting a new procedure or something like that, it's great to have that. And then I also think that you can have these, you know, lifelines, as I think Lori said initially, that you can reach out to even in the OR, should you have that, you know, circumstance that you might need to, um, to talk something over with someone. Speaking of all this, and I think Tom, you alluded to this a little bit earlier, some people walk out with great relationships with mentors from residency. Others maybe need to find mentors or are looking to do a new technique or a new procedure that they don't have a mentor for. Uh, how would you suggest somebody approach or somebody find a mentor for that? Well, I think, I think meetings uh, and videos are really useful, especially videos where there's comments where you can potentially contact that person. And there's a lot of people out there that are very open to discussion on email or even look at your videos afterwards. Honestly, you know, now that I've got a lot of gray hair, to me, it's just such an unbelievable honor when somebody asks you to do that. And I've got so much downtime. How much reality TV can I watch at night? You know, I mean, honestly, the kids are gone. You know, I'm just sitting around. Marguerite's working her buns off and I'm just kind of watching TV. So it's really um, uh, an honor. And I wouldn't I guess I wouldn't hesitate to do it. You might think that that person is 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 busier than they really are, and so I think I think it's worth uh, reaching out. To me, that's what meetings are for. That's the beauty of your meeting, Lisa, the WIO, which I had the honor of going to one time. Is it's such a it's such a mentorship factory, but other meetings can be like that too. But you just have to. It's just a little bit more work in other meetings. For real world ophthalmology, that is um, something we had Aaron Shriver on. She spoke at the meeting and then had somebody reach out to her afterwards because it's virtual. So it's online. So anybody can be a part of it and be able to ask her questions. And actually in that case, it was a medical student who was looking to do some plastics work in a rotation and ended up doing a rotation at university of Iowa. So I think to your point, it is engaging and with opportunities to engage virtually or in person and then asking, because, uh, you know, what's the worst thing that's going to happen? They say, oh, no, I'm sorry, or I don't have time or whatnot. But I think you're right. I think more people would be willing to say yes than you expect. If they don't help you, then you send their, the complication of the video to them and said, hey, thanks for nothing. <laughs> show, the drop, show the lens dropping to the ground. 
Well, Tom, now that I know that you have so much reality TV time, I mean, you might end up higher on my list of people to contact when I need some advice on something. Yeah. yeah. Be careful what you wish for. <laughs> this is all such great advice. I think I've, I'm going to take some of these things with me. I love the idea of practicing new techniques and just sort of enveloping that in your regular cases as well. Um, do either of you have any last bits of advice to share on this topic? Go ahead, Lori, and I'll go. One thing that I was just thinking of as we're all talking and it's getting late, I, the later at night it gets, the loopier and the more deep I become. But I was just thinking that pride is pride is never good for patient care, right? So the more human we can always all be with each other, the more we can interact, the more we can talk, the more we can emote and talk about things and ask for help, the better it is for patients. And I think that's just a beautiful direction that medicine is moving. And I'll stop there before I tear up or something. <laughs> I, I was going to recommend this awesome video by Sarah Borzarg. Do you know her? I don't know if you know her. She's in Portland, Maine. She's really just a fun, interesting videographer. And she made this amazing video for Askris, which was sort of how she learned how to do the Yamini technique. And it's like a silent movie and it involves her family and involves, it's just so great, but it get, goes through all these things that we're talking about in a wonderful way. If you want to do a little teeny bit of homework on the subject, just Google Askris Film Festival and Borzog, B-O-Z-O-R-G, and you'll find her video and um, it's, it's worth looking at. Yeah, I was actually one of the judges on the film festival committee uh, when that video came up. And that's the first video she submitted to Askris. But she did such a great job, like you said, of kind of channeling just the struggles when somebody is starting off and trying to learn a new technique. And and she did it very eloquently. And like you said, uniquely, the, the, all the judges felt the same way. We felt it was a really a great effort that she had put into kind of conveying those feelings that come about. But it reflects beautifully what we're trying to do here, which, you know, is bringing together seasoned surgeons to share what we know, what we wish we knew sooner and kind of help ease the way for those who are coming after us. Yeah, I can't wait to watch that video. I think Sarah is really neat and I love watching what she posts on Instagram every week as she's preparing for her complex cases and I can't wait to watch that one too. Well, thank you so much, Drs. Lori Preventure and Tom Oding for your very valuable insights. I learned a ton from both of you tonight and in the past. Thank you, Lisa Najim and Real World Ophthalmology for making this podcast possible. And everybody stay tuned for more from Real World Ophthalmology in 2023. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much. We have our next meeting on April 15th. And so if you um, haven't joined, please do. It's free. Everything we do is by physicians for physicians. Uh, and thanks for joining us. Have a great day. Bye.